Yeah, thank you, team, for, for leading us this morning. At this time, the kids are dismissed to their program. When I jumped up here earlier, I forgot to say, really, good morning and welcome to the visitors. And if you are visiting with us, uh, we are always just delighted to have you here. If you didn't get a chance on the way in, on the way out, you want to stop by um, our little welcome table in the foyer. We have a gift for you just to say, thanks for being with us this morning. So question, have you ever been in the middle of a project and wondered if this was a uh, a lost cause? (laughs) Should I continue on or should we start over? Uh, That's happened to me uh, more than once. Um, I think I got something curious as I have last week's sermon in here. So I don't, I think, um, let's see, if you could find this week's, that'd be That'd be great. And it's no fault of the team back there. That was, that was me. Um, it might have to be a, a drug in from that, uh, that shared drive. But anyway, if it doesn't come up, that's fine. Um, we'll, we'll all get along just fine. So we had this car that was actually uh, Heather's parents. They got it brand spanking new in 1987 or something. They drove it uh, around the country, and then we inherited it, and uh, we drove it all over the place. And uh, the picture I was going to show you is it, I stopped the car when it hit 300,000 miles uh, just because I, I want to take a picture of the odometer. And we drove it a while after that. And then it, it ran hot for years. And finally, um, uh, it probably warped the head, but at least it blew the head gasket. And so I thought, well, I've, I've done a head gasket once or twice with some help, and uh, I'll give it a shot. So I get into this project, have the whole top half of the engine. I'm not exactly a mechanic, but I have it, it all off and apart. But every piece I touched just disintegrated because of the age of the car and that it was hot for, for years. And, and one moment it dawned on me, what am I doing? <laughs> this car needs to be thrown away. So, uh, so I call Ecology Wrecking and describe the car. Hey, what would you give me for this car? You know, hoping for like $50 or something. So they asked me all these questions. Does it have this? Does it have this? Uh, yeah, it, it's, the engine is mostly in the trunk, but it's still there. They said, uh, okay, that, we'll give you 400 or, or $500 for it. I'm like, come right now. <laughs> Don't, what, why am I holding on to this car? It is a complete uh, lost cause. So I, I abandoned it in place and kept just the license plate off of that. Well, similar if you are in a building that's... Uh, that's condemned, it's too far gone, it's unsafe. The inspector says, no, you got to just exit the building and start uh, from scratch. Well, religion, uh, the practices of worship, over time, like an old building, uh, it tends to fall apart. It tends to, to crumble. Things uh, happen. Priorities shift. Uh, self-serving creeps in. Practices that once had a real purpose are now just purposeless uh, traditions. See, I think all of us, we really want to advance God's kingdom. We want to grow the church. We want to expand our impact. But, uh, but the truth is, and this is the big idea if you're following along in the notes, you can't build the kingdom on broken religion. You can't just uh, put a fresh coat of paint on something that is fundamentally flawed. If your house has structural flaws, you don't fix it by putting a second story on it. 
Well, we'll just build a new one on top of it. It just does not work that way. So in first century A.D., Jesus comes into, into town, and uh, it was all too clear that religion was broken. The, the worship of Yahweh had fallen apart. Uh, the temple, it was, it was beautiful, it was busy, etc., but it was fundamentally flawed in, in the worship. In the same ways, uh, it was flawed in the, some of the very same ways that we tend to be flawed in religion today. The, it's the tendency of, of the church, it's the tendency of worship to fall apart in some of the very same ways as it was then. So here's the setting. We're in the book of Mark. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Last week, we saw that he threw down the gauntlet, so to speak. He, uh, he did some things and said some things that were an open challenge to the established uh, religious leaders. And this week, we see that the official leadership uh, picks up that gauntlet. <laughs> they recognize the challenge, and they come and they uh, confront and get in Jesus' face. And it, it's kind of like one at a time. They come in you know, sort of waves in the temple complex, and we see all these uh, encounters. Uh, uh, honestly, each of these encounters that we'll look at today could uh, easily be a sermon, so I'm going to try to put maybe three or four sermons uh, in one sermon today. It will only be slightly longer than uh, one sermon, so get comfy. It will, so this morning we'll see how, uh, like an unsafe building Jesus condemns broken religion. We'll see three ways that religion tends to break down. It's the same ways it breaks down today. We'll see the one characteristic of true religion. And then finally, we'll see Jesus' response to broken religion. So we'll, we'll be in Mark, uh, finishing chapter 11, and looking at all of 12 and the first couple of verses of 13. So I told you there's a lot to cover. Uh, the context is this. Here's what was going on. Jesus had just... Um, done some dramatic things, as I said, and one of the most dramatic was his uh, coming through and cleansing the temple, so to speak. Uh, you don't go unnoticed when you go into the main place of worship and just start throwing tables, and uh, pigeons go flying, and etc. <gasps> you guys are great back there. Excellent. I just really wanted to, I just really wanted to show you my, um, my uh, odometer. It's true. So... Anyway, so you can't build a kingdom on broken religion. Let's pick it up on verse, uh, verse 27 of Mark 11. It says, And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, kind of the outer courts of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And so chief priests, scribes, elders, uh, that represents probably the Sanhedrin, the official leadership of um, the movers and shakers, the power people in the religious structure there, their official representatives. And they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? What things? Well, probably his uh, throwing tables all over the place or possibly allowing his disciples to attribute to him things that uh, are only attributable to the Messiah, the anointed one. What, on what authority do, do you do all these things? They came out and challenged him, and we see this series of encounters in the temple. And, uh, and in these encounters, we see the way that religion w- was fractured, the ways that broke down. And the first way 
that religion tends to break down is it tends to be exploitive. This is perhaps the worst thing that happens to religion. Jesus, there in front of the, the, the movers and shakers, the leaders, the respected uh, elders of, uh, of worship, he tells this little story. Chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. He said, a man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants. And then he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Well, again, he sent them to sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is his heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. You know, Jesus tells this, this horrible story of, of these uh, these tenants, keepers of this vineyard that, that mistreated all the representatives of the vineyard owner and eventually killed his son and just tossed him out because they wanted uh, to just take it all for themselves. They want to exploit it, so to speak. And uh, the vineyard is, is God's people. The vineyard owner is obviously God. And the son is Jesus. And the tenants were these religious leaders. And uh, they, they didn't miss this because we see in verse 12 it says, uh, they perceived that he told the parable against them. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is uh, against us. And so they, they obviously reacted. Well, this parable has all these, it's just loaded with significance. Um, Jesus quotes this uh, Old Testament uh, messianic uh, psalm. He identifies himself as, as the son of the vineyard owner, which would, you know, the son of God. All kinds of things are happening in this parable. But the basic effect of it was to say, you keepers of religion are exploiting the people. You are malicious, you are selfish, and you come from a long line of people who've done just the same to all the prophets that have come, all those who truly represent God. The religious establishment was selfishly exploiting what they should have been caring for. It's always tragic when people get taken advantage of. It's especially tragic when it happens in the name of religion. Whether it's the middle-aged papal excesses or a televangelist supporting this decadent lifestyle with widows' social security checks, or whether it's clergy abusing parishioners, whatever it might be, it's just heartbreaking when this happens. And this is what Jesus accused the religious leaders of doing. When religion becomes exploitive, the world wants nothing to do with it. And that's sometimes the accusation they, uh, they throw against the church. Like, we don't want any of that, if that's what it's about. When religion becomes exploitive, uh, Jesus wants nothing to do with it. And that's what he came in and uh, pronounced on this occasion. The next challenge in the temple courtyard uh, 
again, it's another group comes. There's another encounter. This one comes from a really unexpected place. And we'll pick up the story in verse 13. And they, this is kind of the same established religious group. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So we might, if we know who the Herodians are, we might wonder what the Pharisees and the Herodians are, are doing hanging out together. The Herodians were the Jewish political party that was sympathetic to um, uh, Herod's rule. They were, uh, it was a social and political agenda that supported uh, Rome and the, and the power authorities that Rome had established there. So why are they connected with the Pharisees? I think it's because when religion breaks down, another thing that happens is it tends to get political. <laughs> Do we see this happening in our uh, day? Yes, it, it happens. They came to uh, trap him in his talk. They came to drag him into a politically charged topic. And the, the topic, verse 14, is, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, should we pay them or should we not pay them? This, this is about the poll tax, a certain kind of, of tax that was, um, it, it really has to do with, um, with Judah and the complicated uh, layers of political control that was happening there. And there were some different uh, groups that had very different ideas about that. The zealots, they thought it was impossible to give allegiance to God and to give allegiance to secular government. And the Herodians thought these things were totally compatible. These would be kind of two poles of the scale at that time. And so a real hot topic that they would bring up is, is the poll tax. Uh, verse 15, Jesus responds like this. But knowing their hypocrisy, he knew that they were they were just trying to, you know, expose him and, and, uh, and, and cast him as one side of this or another, which would automatically alienate him from the other side, etc. Knowing their hypocrisy, he says, oh, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, well, Caesar's. Jesus says in this just uh, brilliant uh, little phrase, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And their response is that everyone marveled at that. Jesus' response was genius. It was true, and it was incredibly non-political. They were trying to put him as a, you know, cast him with one party so, uh, so they could uh, exclude him, um, basically make half the people... Uh, uh, reject Jesus. Uh, he doesn't bite. His response rejected the zealot ideology, but it was not uh, pro-Roman either. Render to God the things that are, that are God's. It, it's a brilliant response. I think there is a pervasive tendency to uh, confuse sometimes religion and political alignment. This is just kind of human nature. We, we gravitate toward uh, the powers that be, and we assess them, and then we align ourselves, and we confuse all that sometimes with a true heart allegiance to Christ and his word. We, we know this happens. I, I was thinking about this, and I thought, perhaps the best day and the worst day for Christianity in the first 500 years of the church was the conversion of Constantine. 
the, the Roman uh, emperor or the ruler of the, of the Roman Empire. Um, Christianity moved from being outlawed and persecuted to being uh, tolerated to non-Christianity being outlawed and non-Christianity being uh, persecuted. So we see this progression. It's a, it's a day to cheer, it's a day to cry, because it, it ushered in centuries of, of, a, of a political commingling in the worst kind of way with uh, the church and the power, political powers of that day. We get things um, like these internal uh, power struggles, and we get things like the Crusades, and all these terrible things came out of the aftermath of that. Some of you are wondering, but Josh, shouldn't my faith influence my politics? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they should. You should take your scriptural convictions and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to the polls with you. Absolutely, yes. By the way, I think that's November 6th. Mark that on your calendars. Take your scriptural convictions and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit with you. And then sometimes uh, our spiritual conviction demands that we, we act dramatically and we use the political means. I, I think the classic of this is, is William Wilberforce in his efforts to abolish slavery in England uh, around the, during the 18th century. Was that appropriate? Yes. Yes, it, it certainly was. But your faith, your faith should affect your politics, but you shouldn't confuse them together. When religion becomes political, the world wants nothing to do with it. I remember uh, a, uh, what I think is just a moral issue came up, and the response was, uh, that's political. Like, how, how is that political? When religion becomes political, Jesus wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> that's one of the ways... It was broken at that time. It was so, worship of God was so intermingled with politics that you could not figure out which was which in the first century. Okay, we've heard from the priests, we've heard from the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and now we're introduced to another group in verse 18, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to him, uh, by the way, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. So who were the Sadducees, besides being sad, you see? Uh, they were really powerful in the Sanhedrin, probably the, the majority party there, so to speak. Uh, they were really uh, devoted to the Mosaic Law, very devoted to it. So their, uh, their uh, stance that there was no resurrection, you know, there's no heaven, no afterlife, um, was actually because of their devotion to the Mosaic Law, not... In, um, in contrast to the Mosaic Law. So uh, if we think of the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, quick, raise your hand if you can think of a verse that teaches uh, about the afterlife in the Pentateuch. Yeah, time's up. It's very hard to find. It's very hard to find. And, uh, and so that's why they uh, were against it. Well, taking the scriptures as a whole, we hear uh, Psalm and Isaiah. We see that, that God is maybe progressively revealing the significance of, of eternity um, 
But, but they would have uh, none of it. It's so, oh, you're wanting to fill in blanks. Broken religion tends to be divisive. Okay, so here's what they're doing. They, they had this question that was just meant to be divisive. It was a hypothetical scenario. Um, and here's what would happen in this hypothetical scenario. The woman's, a woman is married and her husband dies. And then uh, she marries uh, the brother of her husband and he dies. And then she marries the next brother, and he dies. And he marries the next brother, and he dies. And the next brother, and he dies. And the next brother, and he dies. And the next brother, and he dies. Okay, so we know this is a hypothetical scenario because uh, no one would be asking afterlife questions about this if this really happened. They'd be asking, uh, do you think she killed them all? Uh, They just kept dying on her. Uh, But it's this scenario that's just meant to uh, show just how ridiculous it would be to believe in the afterlife, the resurrection. <laughs> this is silly because their question, verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? All of a sudden, uh, in heaven, she has, you know, seven, uh, seven husbands, and they think they, they got him. And Jesus' response is something like, well, you may have your foolproof arguments, you may have your proof text, but, verse 24, Uh, you're wrong (laughs) because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And to illustrate that, Jesus could have used, um, again, Isaiah or Psalm or some other place. He could have uh, invoked all kinds of different things, but instead he takes them right to the heart of the Pentateuch, right to Exodus 3, and uh, he reveals to them that they do not actually have it all figured out. In verse 27, he just concludes, uh, actually, you are quite wrong. (laughs) That was his assessment. So I just started to ponder, um, you know, being in that time period and somebody that's looking from the outside at all this uh, scene going on, the the, the worship um, scene in Jerusalem. And I think of a a soldier maybe stationed there, a Roman soldier, and he writes home to his his wife and says something like this. Uh, Dear Claudia, our new assignment in Jerusalem is a mixed bag so far. The weather's great, the wine is fair, but the people in their religion are maddening. Most everyone claims to believe in the same God they call Yahweh, but there are so many splintered factions and power struggles, it's all we can do to keep the peace. I'm not even sure why Rome sees the need for executions. If we just left them alone, I think they would kill each other. Yours truly, Tony. Is this what outsiders might sometimes uh, perceive the state of, of, uh, of worship of God in America to be now? Oh, there's just all these little groups, and they're arguing with each other, and they're, they're divisive, etc. I mean, some are so detached with um, the trend away from religion in our, in our nation that they don't even know the arguments that are going on. <laughs> and, and others, that's probably all they see. Sometimes our devotion to Scripture uh, leads us to, we have to distinguish ourselves from, from other groups that are, are just so contrary to Scripture. But religion breaks down when it just becomes divisive. I think part of it is, in, is a heart issue when we vilify the groups that disagree, when we're drawn into debates in ways that are, that are arrogant, 
Like, like these Sadducees that just, they thought, oh, we're just going to show how just stupid and ridiculous he is because, you know, how could this even work in, the, in eternity? When we focus on the peripherals rather than the core. See, when religion becomes divisive, the world wants what? Nothing to do with it. When religion becomes divisive, Jesus wants nothing to do with it. So if Jesus renounces religion that's exploitive and political and divisive, what, what does he affirm? What, what is he for, so to speak? What should be the primary characteristic of true religion? And the answer is that true religion is characterized by love. Verse 28, it's, I love how the story shifts right here. It says, One of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Well, again, this is another uh, probably uh, hotly debated topic because when you have over 600 um, uh, specific commands in the Torah, sometimes scenarios arise where you might see a conflict of these commands and you need to decide you know, which takes precedence over the others. Or, or maybe you're just are looking for a way to summarize the, the commands, etc. So people would apparently talk about this a lot. And Jesus answered from Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema, Shema Israel, and then from Leviticus 19, and uh, he quotes them, at least paraphrases them, verse 30 and 31. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. See, when religion is, uh, is healthy, <laughs> when it's doing well, when uh, the worship of God uh, has the Spirit of God in the midst of it, it's characterized by love. Jesus says this uh, in John 13. He says, uh, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? If you have love for one another. People should be able to identify you like, oh, those are the people that, that love each other. Yeah. I mean, how could you be against that? That's what Jesus says. And this scribe agrees, and he adds to that, to love God and people is much more important than, than the ceremonial worship, more important than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Verse 34, I love Jesus' response. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's kind of a curious, uh, a curious response. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So I thought of the Beatles. <laughs> that all you need is love. Uh, well, they were not quite right, but they were not far off. <laughs> they were not far from getting it right. And so then I thought, what, what am I known for in, in my neighborhood? Oh, the guy in the yellow house down there, he just loves everybody. Stay away from there. What is, our, what is our church known for? What, um, what are evangelical Christians in our, in our nation known for? Um, if, it, if it's not primarily love, then, um, then we have something wrong. Sometimes we can love and it's not perceived that way, 
but it should be a good indicator that we need a heart check. Well, a couple things that I love about this little encounter here. One is we finally get, um, we get an encouraging interaction when we see time after time the groups come to Jesus in the courtyard and there's this battle, and etc. And now finally one guy comes and, uh, and he, he, he's getting it. He, he's close. I also love how it says, uh, one of the scribes. So the scribal system uh, was messed up. Um, it was breaking down. And, uh, and yet, one of these scribes, somebody from that, that party, that group, w- was getting it. He was sincere. He had a sincere question, and uh, he was, he was uh, assessing things correctly. And it made me think, even in varieties of Christianity that have deteriorated into a workspace religion, I think it gives me hope there's still people there that, that uh, are really seeking the Lord that are really on the right track. Don't you want to be associated with something characterized by love? Like how bad could that be? When religion is characterized by love, the world loves to hear about that. That's fantastic. When religion is characterized by by love, Jesus says, well, now you're starting to get it. (laughs) You're, You're close. You're on the right track. We know, we know that he also needed to embrace Christ in, in all that he is. We know there's more to the story, but Jesus says, uh, you are a whole lot closer than all of your friends here living in this house that's about to collapse. So Jesus is not quite done in the temple and just kind of want to fly through the rest of this. Because what, what else is he going to accomplish here on the temple grounds? Jesus condemns the broken religion, in order to build something new. Um, I, I don't have time to read all these, but I'll just mention these, these multiple encounters. He's on their turf. Jesus openly denounces the broken religious system. He comes in, and he's like, this thing's broken. I condemn this place. It's messed up. So in uh, verses 35 to 37, they have this um, conversation Jesus initiates about who's Son is the anointed one. Um, this, this calls on Psalm 110. It's this messianic psalm with this, um, it, it's a sermon in itself, but let me just say this about it, that uh, he shows the experts of the law that they have a faulty understanding of the Messiah. That, that's kind of a bold thing to say to the experts, and, uh, and he says that. In verses 38 to, to 40, he just openly says, hey, everybody, Watch out for the scribes. They're out to get you. They're full of hypocrisy and malicious and selfish. See, that's kind of bold also. In verses 41 to 44, uh, the rest of this chapter, we have the story of the widow's might, where Jesus publicly shows that this this poor widow, uh, her faith, her religion is truer than all the religious elite. And so it's just like blow after blow to the established religion and then jesus walks out of the temple uh never to return (laughs) it's like he dusts his hands off beginning of chapter 13 he came out of the temple one of his disciples who apparently didn't quite get it yet says "Uh, look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and jesus says 
Oh, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When the edifice, when the structure, the building of, of worship, I'm not talking about the actual building, but um, the, this whole thing that we build, worship, when, when it's broken and Jesus condemns it, uh, its days are numbered. Like that Camry came to the conclusion, uh, this isn't worth fixing. <laughs> we have to push this onto a trailer and say goodbye, take the plate off and, and bless it and uh, move on with life, get a new one. We actually got another one of the exact same car that's just slightly newer uh, that you've probably seen me drive sometimes. Um, or like the building inspector is in this dilapidated building, looks around, he's like, ah, oh, the floor, it's full of asbestos. The roof is about to cave in. Uh, there's lead pipes, they're all broken. The walls are full of mold spores, and on and on and on. If the big bad wolf had emphysema, he could still blow it down. It's done. And the disciples say, well, should we paint it? It's like, no, we should get out. (laughs) We should get out right away because it's going to collapse on us. Jesus condemned this whole system of worship, and he got out. So just briefly as we conclude, what's the significance of all this? Well, the significance for Israel was that Jesus knew the whole system of worship was beyond repair, so he condemned it in order to start something new, a new covenant a new building made of living stones that he would finance this project with his blood. We see Jesus condemning something that was broken, starting something that's new. That's a lot of what's happening in in this part of Mark. The significance for churches, individual churches, are uh, when groups of, um, of churches become exploitive, political, divisive, rather than characterized by love, their days are numbered. Eventually, Jesus will shut that down, as we see uh, in Revelation 2. I mentioned this last week, where it says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. No longer characterized by love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come and remove your lampstand. You're done. It's kind of a, a chilling little conversation. But what about significance for individuals? I was thinking, you know, buildings don't uh, just fall apart overnight. Well, actually, I just thought of a friend, Kyle Elton. Some of you knew a large tree fell in his house years ago. But usually buildings fall apart just a little bit at a time. Oh, uh, the roof is kind of peeling up, and you just kind of neglect it. Or there's just a little leak. It won't do that much damage, and over time, it's it's just destroyed. Well, I think when we think about I, when we think about our own hearts, our own um, worship habits, our own disposition toward Christ, we need to take some careful um, maintenance walks <laughs> through our lives and say, where where are things you know, falling apart? Is there any of this um, any traces of this kind of self serving um, entitlement that's exploitive, or is there any of this just confusing political alignment with allegiance to Christ? Or this spirit of divisiveness and and theological arrogance and arguing all the time? A lack of love toward God and others? If these things are creeping up in our hearts, we need to take those before the Lord. Don't let that roof just keep peeling up and peeling up until one day you come in and 
it's, it's ripped off. Take it to the Lord. So our challenge is simply invite Jesus to inspect the health of your worship. Come before the, the ultimate building inspector who, who actually uh, owns the building and cares for it deeply and say, Jesus, where, where does uh, my heart need maintenance? And then the Lord who, uh, who calls you his workmanship um, will come and do a work in it and repair and mend and restore. And uh, you don't have to let the worship of your heart uh, fall apart. Invite Jesus to inspect the health of your worship. Uh, let me pray as the team comes back up. Lord God, I just think if, um, if you walked in here and, and looked around and listened to our conversations and heard our songs, I just wonder what you would, would think of them. And I, I pray that you would be pleased and you would see... You would see love in our hearts for each other. You'd see uh, a sincere adoration and love in our hearts for you, above all. That you'd see a, a genuineness. You'd see a truthfulness. You'd see just a, a simple hearts of, of faith, just trying our best to, to love and please you and to do it in your strength. But Lord, if you see something else, would you uh, stir in our hearts and not let that, that sit, but to... Uh, to, to kind of poke us until we, we respond and, and just humbly come before you and say, Lord, Lord, fix this, this mess that we tend to get ourselves in. God, thank you for, for the church. and you, you love so much. You died for us, and we are forever, forever grateful to you. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.